Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Catfish Corner. That's right, we're no longer the Predators podcast because that's generic and boring, and the Predators, as we've seen from last night and all the games earlier this season, are anything but generic and boring. I'm John Garcia, joined with me is Adam Vingen. Adam, what about that game last night? Was that crazy or what? I think it was Austin Watson. He was asked after the game how it transpired, and to paraphrase it, I'm not really sure how to explain it. <laughs> um, but the easy explanation is that the Predators kind of sleepwalked, right? Sleepwalk, sleepwalk, sleep, sleepwalk, slept, 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 and walked. slept and walked through uh, the first two periods of the game, especially that second period, which I, I think was one of their worst periods of the season. They were down one nothing and were outshot sixteen to three in the second period. Usually, it's the other way around, score effects wise, when you're trailing. But they were able to dust themselves off. Peter Laviolette said that he had done enough yelling at them during the four game road trip while they were in various funks, but just felt like they wanted to. He wanted to have a conversation, and then he said, "Well, I was doing the talking, and they were listening." But wasn't harsh on them. They knew that they weren't playing well, so he didn't feel the need to hammer that point home and told them it before he left the dressing room because he's not in there the whole time. Before he left the dressing room, if we play our style of game, we can easily score three goals, and, and they did in, in a less than seven-minute span, one from Callie Yarncroke, two from Austin Watson, and then ultimately Philip Forsberg winning the game in overtime on the penalty shot. That was the fourth time in franchise history the Predators have won a game in which they've trailed by three goals in the third period. Of those four, it's the first time they've done it at home. The other three times are on the road. It's the second successful overtime penalty shot first in franchise history. David Legwand history around Christmas time in 2000. So the first time in the New York more Queens. than 17 years that the Predators have scored an overtime penalty shot. It's the second one this season. I believe it was William Nylander for the Toronto Maple Leafs against the Chicago Blackhawks right before the All-Star break, uh, had a penalty shot overtime winner. So all of that said, you look at how the standings look today with the result of the game versus how they would have looked if the Predators would have lost in regulation. And they have four games in hand on the on the St. Louis Blues, regardless, understood. But if they would have lost in regulation, the Blues would have been within two points now, because the Predators won, they're up five. They're up five with four games in hand. Of course, you have to win those games in hand or earn points in those games in hand. But the Predators are in a very good spot right now in terms of the Central Division pecking order. Unfortunately for them, Winnipeg also had its own comeback, down 3-1 in the third period to the Washington Capitals, scored a shorthanded equalizing goal with 14.4 seconds left. They were down a man, but then they pulled the goalie to make it five-on-five. Uh, they scored the game-tying goal and then won it in overtime 4-3 to on a Tyler Myers goal. So the Jets maintained pace with the Predators. That being said, you really needed to have that win last night when you look at the Central Division. We've talked about this before. This team or any team in the Central, whether it be Nashville, Winnipeg, St. Louis, Dallas, Minnesota, you know they can't afford any sort of slip-up or hiccup because if they do, they're probably going to slide down the standings. Look at the Chicago Blackhawks. I'm not sure... They've, won, they've lost seven consecutive games. And bad, and, bad too. Yeah, and bad I losses. don't think they've won since they were here when they won 2-1 in regulation. I think that may have been their last victory. I may be wrong, but it seems like that's the case. When they won that game, you thought maybe they'll find their way back into the uh, playoff race. Then they lose seven in a row and they're done. Mm-hmm. They've got absolutely zero chance barring you know a perfect rest of the way and all the teams in front of them just 
just falling apart. So that's why every single point matters. The Predators, even if they're not winning games like they did on the road, they're collecting points. They didn't beat Toronto, but they got a point. They didn't beat Ottawa, but they got a point. They're not pleased with that necessarily because they want to win, but they will take points any way they can get them. And I wanted to ask you about that because after seeing what happened you know, against the Islanders, they came back, but against Toronto, they had a little bit of a harder time against Ottawa. Throughout the road trips, you mentioned this on Twitter as well, that there were maybe some, some cracks in the armor showing a little bit now, and then I'm sure that there are plenty of Preds fans last night that didn't get to watch the overtime win because they probably turned <laughs> off the TV before the game was over. Is there anything concerning about this play that you think and I, I believe you even mentioned in your article like hey not to put a damper on this crazy win but you know there are some trends that are starting to appear that the that the predators and their fans may not like so much yeah I just think that they they look disjointed at times and Pecorine and we'll get to him more in depth in a minute you know he's really been saving their behinds for the last several games and he's been fantastic and even so in that game Really, the only thing that you could pin against him was that first goal. I mean, Jay Boomister is not an offensive powerhouse. You know, letting a goal on the rush from above the circles to a player who that was only his second goal of the season. I mean, he's played more than 1,000 games in the NHL. I think he has fewer than 100 goals. That's not a great goal. But the other two, wasn't getting a lot of great help in front of the crease, which I also think has been a problem area lately in terms of net front defense and and the quality of scoring chances that they're allowing. But you saw it in the game against Montreal, especially when he had a 47-save performance, the second most he's had in a game in his NHL career. And you saw it last night. He made so many big saves through the second period after the Blues went up 3-0. There were a couple breakouts, a couple rush, uh, odd man rushes, I think a, at least one breakaway or semi-breakaway, and he made all of the necessary saves. Pecorine certainly deserves credit for how well he's been playing. He also deserves a significant amount of credit for that win last night because if, it not, if not for him keeping the Predators within three, it could have been a lot worse. So I think they need to find a way, they need to find a way not to put it all on him all the time. They need to tighten up in front of him. We talked about this with UC Soros a mm-hmm. couple of podcasts ago about when he had the 40 plus save shutout in Edmonton. Well, yeah, that's great. But why are they giving up 40 plus shots in the first place? That's what the Predators need to do with Pecorino. Yes, he's been great, but they're kind of forcing him to be great because of the way they're playing in front of him. They're not, co- they're not cohesive in the defensive zone in that regard lately. I think that's something that needs to be fixed. Yeah, and it reminds me of uh, several years ago when the team was not as good as they are right now, where they you could tell very much that they were relying on the strength of Pecorino at goaltender to kind of save their bacon a whole lot. They don't really need to do that anymore because, one, they can score goals, which is a problem that they've had throughout their franchise, but they also have some great defenders, some great forwards, and some great two-way players that can take that pressure off him. So, yes, it's great that Pecorino can save their bacon whenever he wants to, and that he's consistently doing that right now. But he shouldn't have to be doing that every single night. No, and I think that's really what's been the case in the last several starts of his. I felt like it was it was definitely like that, like that in Montreal. Predators' defense looked like pylons at different points throughout that game. They were caught flat-footed a lot, not great decision-making, and, and puck management, and Pekka was exquisite. in in earning that victory for the Predators. And they were not shy about saying that after the game in Montreal. They knew that that game was won because of how Pekka played. And it's because of that that I think, you know, I wrote an article last week essentially asking the question why 
Predators players aren't generating a lot of buzz for end of season NHL awards. Now the base, the the crux of the article dealt with PK Subban uh, because it made sense. They were in Montreal. He had been having a Norris caliber season in the previous game. He scored two goals against the Senators had tied his career high in goals, was on pace for a career season offensively while also facing some very tough defensive assignments and zone starts and things like that. But yet he isn't really mentioned in that conversation. And I think you can still, you can say the same thing about Pecorine in the Vezina. You would think theoretically because of what the Predators accomplished last year and how good they've been this year, that there should be more attention on them. But I still think they suffer from the fact that they do play in Nashville mm-hmm. um, in terms of the exposure that they receive. When I think of the top Vezina caliber finalists, you know, Andre Vasilevsky of the Tampa Bay Lightning, I think, stands out as yeah, number one. Yeah, the first one. one on top and, of my mind. Yeah, and he's probably the presumptive favorite. But after that, Pekka, Connor Hellebuck of the Winnipeg Jets. I mean, there are definitely a couple of goaltenders in that conversation. I think Pekka deserves to be in that conversation. I mean, I, I was looking at some of his statistics. Yeah, and I've got them up right yeah, now. And like, If it. you look at the uh, goaltending leaders column on uh, NHL.com, they have GAA save percentage wins shutouts. He's on every single one of these. He's got a 2.31 GAA, which is not the top, but it's uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. It's about 6 or 7th. He is uh, right up there with save percentage. He's got a 9.27 save percentage right now, which is way above his career average. And then you look at his wins. He's second in wins to Andre Vasilevsky and also second in shutouts to Andre Vasilevsky because he's got uh, 29 wins right now and five shutouts right now. I mean, that's incredible, especially when you think to just a couple of years ago when he had that hip surgery and when he came back, um, there were many people... I might even put myself in there who were not as bullish on Pecorino as they used to be. Like I remember when he came back and he had a he had a long road to recover from that hip surgery and he was not the same player and there were sometimes flashes of what he could do before but he wasn't as reliable and consistent and he would give up some bad goals every once in a while and yeah every season he made some incredible saves but they were one of those saves that you say like well he really shouldn't be doing those type of saves because the reason they look so cool is because he's scrambling and he's out of position to get back there anyway he still does that from time to time but he has been rock solid both this season and last season and in the playoffs last year going to the Stanley Cup final I mean he is I think he's probably playing the best hockey of his career I think so. If you look at if you look at this season and include the first three rounds of the playoffs last year and the stretch run of the regular season last year, I could certainly agree with that. You know, to give you a sense of how well he's been playing lately, you know, that I found this out last night. If you just take the 2018 portion of the Predators schedule, uh, he's lost once in regulation. He's 10-1-1 with a 1.96 goals against average and 9.34 save percentage. Another thing I discovered earlier today, he's unbeaten in his past 11 appearances in regulation. He's 10-0-1. Um, and if he's able to not uh, lose in regulation in his next start, which could be Thursday against the Calgary Flames, he'll tie the franchise record for longest point streak by a goaltender, which he also holds currently. <laughs> of course. Uh, from, fe- from January 7th to February 7th, 2012. January 7th to February 7th, 2012, he was 11-0-1. So he's playing, and in and, and that time frame, I imagine that 2011-12 season was when Pekka was at the height of his powers, mm-hmm. being a regular Vezina Trophy finalist. And I think that's where he deserves to be again this year. So, I like how you said powers, like he's getting it from yes. the Earth's yellow sun. Yeah, something like that. So I certainly think he's deserving. P.K. Subban's last couple games haven't been spectacular, but overall I certainly think he's deserving. And I guess let's we, we didn't talk about talking about this, 
before we started, but mm-hmm. now that I'm remembering P.K. Subban, I think it's important to talk about what happened after the game in Montreal between P.K. Subban and Brendan Gallagher. And for those of you who did not absorb it, of course, the Predators won that game in a shootout. P.K. Subban had a terrible game. Not good. Just looked a little shaky out there. You wonder if there were nerves about playing in Montreal, even though there shouldn't be because he's already done it, but he just did not have a good game. And Brendan Gallagher, you know, the epitome of a player that you love if he's on your favorite team, but you despise if he's not, um, scored a goal, uh, definitely took a run at, at PK at one point and missed so badly he fell on his face and had to get stitched up. Um, after he scored that goal, he he definitely went by the Predators bench and chatted something in PK's direction. They were going at it all game, and they were also going at it at the game here in November right before Thanksgiving. So after the game, uh, Montreal reporters were asking Brendan about his uh, uh, tete-a-tete, I guess, with PK. And Brendan, to paraphrase, kept on saying, I'm not really sure why we're talking about him. What was he, like minus one in the game? And, you know, he tried to come in here and make it all about PK Subban. That's what he does. I'm sure if you want to go find him, he'll he'll talk about himself. He'll give you a line. And a PK, you know, did his usual shtick where, you know, he sort of acknowledges it but brushes it off and, and pivots to something else saying, you know, I didn't really see that smile from Brendan Gallagher. The only thing I saw was his mouth, you know, being bloody after he fell and he tried to hit me or something like that. But anyway, I personally took that as, and first of all, it was a hot topic. I was listening to Montreal radio on Monday. That's all they were talking about. Oh, I'm sure. They, that's all they were talking that's about. fuel for the fire Absolutely. Right there for no, every show, you know, I was listening to TSN 690, which is the English language uh, radio station in Montreal. It's just morning show, midday show, afternoon show. All it was was PK and Brendan Gallagher. And it's very interesting how people up there, media members, talk show hosts, fans still perceive PK. There's a big... Uh, there's a big pro-PK crowd, but there's also a very big anti-PK crowd. My personal opinion is that what Brendan Gallagher said was the closest thing to an, admit, to an admission of why the predator, excuse me, why the Canadians traded PK than we've received in almost two years. I think if you're wondering what, how he was perceived in that locker room, mm-hmm. um, if you're wondering why uh, management felt that the best way for them to go was to get rid of him. I think that Brendan Gallagher speaking in frustration sort of ex- explained why PK was traded from a player standpoint, from an actual Cana- Montreal Canadian standpoint, if I can spit this out. I think that was the closest thing to an admission that, we, that we've received since he was traded about why he was traded. Yeah, and you've heard those reports and rumors, and even, um, I don't remember if we've talked about this in the past couple of years, but on the epics, you know, behind the scenes, when PK walks in the locker room with that gaudy red fur jacket and stuff like that, and see all the head shakes at him and kind of laughing, like you saw all of that, and it, it's weird to see that because it, that doesn't necessarily seem to be at all close to what's going on in the locker room here. And you can probably speak toward this a, a little bit more, but, you know, you saw so many of the players go to the Montreal Children's Hospital with him while he was up in Montreal. And there there seems to be, you know, a genuine respect for P.K. Subban here. Um, and maybe it's just one of those things, like you always hear in sports, a change of scenery is good for people. Well, I think, of course, the success that the team has had since he's been here helps. I mean, you can you can put up with a lot of you can put up with a lot if your team is winning. I mean, that isn't to say that I, I can't I can't say definitively that PK Subban has hasn't irked his teammates at one point or another. I'm, I'm sure, sure anyone the, would. I'm sure the Listerine uh, fiasco of last season 
By the way, we have to mention that for a second. Okay. P.K. Subban did an interview with Nick Kiprios of Sportsnet while he was in Toronto. They filmed it while they were in Toronto. They had the off day uh, between the Islanders and Maple Leafs games. It was aired on Saturday, I believe, um, as a as part of the pregame package for Predators Canadians. And, you know, P.K. admitted, like, yeah, Sidney Crosby didn't ask me about my breath. Like, who actually ever believed that they were talking about his breath? Like, it became such a thing during the Stanley Cup final, and I can't even remember then being like, why are we making this such a big deal? We obviously know that's not what was said. And if you watch the Stanley Cup final show on Epics, I believe, or NHL or whatever it was, you definitely know it wasn't about their breath. Right. It was definitely language that is not uh, friendly to this particular podcast. Yeah. So, and- like, why, why are we... I can't believe anyone actually thought that was a thing. And, and maybe I'm just overreacting, but I actually do believe there are several people. People were asking Sidney Crosby about the next day. And he was like, that's not what he said. Well, then they kept on, they kept on going. It's just, I think it's, it's I mess. think it's a symptom of people in hockey, not embracing the lighter side and the fun side, especially in the Stanley cup final, especially when the captain of one of the teams is Sidney Crosby, who's about as interesting as a white piece of toast. I yes. mean, like he, he really is. And I, I think one of the reasons why it garnered legs after Sidney Crosby was asked, because he was like, your reaction basically like why are we talking about this what no of course that's not what he said and uh hockey fans are like of course that's not what he said but it's still fun like come on give us some fun i think that's why it took on some legs and got fun and yeah i mean once once there were you know stands outside of bridgestone arena giving away free listerine ahead of game six it was a little bit too much for me yeah jumped the shark there but back to the original point i feel like and I, fe- I think this is something else that, you know, listening to Montreal Radio on Monday that I got the sense of is that that's not the first time that his teammates have joined him at the hospital. Um, last year they did as well. I'm not sure there were as many, but I know a couple of teammates that go. I know Roman Yossi went both times. I think Ryan Johansson may have also gone both times, but I'm not sure. But, mm-hmm. you know, Scott Hartnell went this year and Anthony Botetto as well and Matt Irwin. Um, and PK took a picture, you know, tweeted it out, you know, great to have these guys with me at the hospital, something like that ex-Canadians teammates didn't do that with him. And you wonder if him posting that was his way of saying, you know, look look how great things are right now for me. Same thing with the video that he tweeted out of like the, it looked like bootleg footage of him like greeting Carey Price and Alex Galchenyuk after the game. Like really great <laughs> to see these guys after mm-hmm. Brendan Gallagher said all of his things. So, I mean, P.K. Subban, you know, we talk about how how much of a marketing genius for lack of a better term he is he's also that way when it comes to when it comes to subtle trash talk oh yeah it doesn't have to be as explicit but there was definitely some subtweeting going on there to you know to use the terms that the millennials use but you know i i thought that was very interesting um just the number of questions that peter laviolette and roman yossi were fielding on saturday morning about how pk continues to fit in the locker room you've had a whole season of seeing it. And I understand that in Montreal, the teams only play each other twice. They only go to Montreal once. So this is, so you're not in there every day uh, like I am or others are, but you know, I I feel like that storyline has run its course for right now. I mean, I don't understand why it keeps getting brought up and I could tell that the players that were being asked were getting a little, you know, all right, we've, you know, anything else we can talk about sort of like the Brendan Gallagher, but not, not for any reason that they don't like talking about PK. It's just that, I feel like they also know that these are the questions that they've been getting and they don't see a problem with it. So um, they don't really understand why they have to answer it. But 
Um, that's yeah. Like, that's you know Montreal media for you. Yeah. You're gonna, they're going to ask next year probably, and then yes. maybe after that, who knows? Yes. But um, so switching gears real quick, the New York Rangers, yes. which is a team that every Predators fans has their eye on right now because of and a the couple rest of, of the other, league, yeah, because of uh, a couple of forwards there. They tweeted last week a statement yes. to their season ticket holders and to their fans, basically saying prepare. We're looking to the future. We're going to start rebuilding. We're getting rid of some assets to go younger. We're going to, we're just letting you know in advance. Hockey teams don't really do that, especially midseason when you're kind of on the playoff bubble, and especially a team like the Rangers, who are and have been a perennial playoff team, a perennial Stanley Cup contender, even if they haven't reached that point, and are expected to do well because of the market. Were you shocked by this? I mean, I was a little bit taken aback. I think by it's it. interesting to see that sort of transparency from a team. Uh, I certainly respect it because we don't, like I said, we don't get that sort of transparency regularly. But Jeff Gorton, the general manager of the New York Rangers, you know, admitted in the press conference later that day that you know, look at we we know where we are in the standings. We're still you know within grasp of a playoff spot, but we're not a good enough team to win. Like where we are right now, between injuries and players being inconsistent. You know, he took a realist view. We're we're not good enough to win. And they realize that they're going to have to start looking to the future. I mean, keep in mind, this was a team that was building to win now for such a long time. They didn't have a first-round draft pick for like six years. Yep. I think it was like between 2012 and 2017 or something like that, where they didn't have their own first-round draft pick. I mean, they they really sold the farm for the present when you look at you know, trading for Rick Nash or Marty St. Louis or players like that. Keith Yando, Keith they got Yandel. Anthony Duclair yeah. when he was uh, up and coming and stuff like right. that. Right. So they've they've tried to win now. Uh they haven't. And now they're you know, they're facing the repercussions and they understand they have to get younger. And other teams have sort of taken that lead since then. The Ottawa Senators, who are very far down in the standings despite being the Predators last week, um, and they'll be back in Nashville on Monday. Um now, their season is effectively over. Uh, they made a trade last night. Dion Phaneuf was pretty much the... Which would have been huge if it were 2009. Yeah, Dion Phaneuf for Marion Gabrick, yeah, would have been huge about 10 years ago. But, you know, they announced a contract extension for their GM, Pierre Dorian. And within the press release, Eugene Melnick, their owner, was quoted as saying that we're starting to stockpile assets and look to the future, which is his way of saying we're starting to rebuild. And that's a team that I think... You know, if you're looking for something, that's a team. I think we talk, look at the Rangers. I think they have more you know notable names, but the Senators do have a lot of players that are intriguing to teams like Mike Hoffman and, and Jean Gabriel Peugeot and and Zach Smith and and players of that caliber. Um, you know, Eric Carlson doesn't seem to be going anywhere uh, yet, but you know the Vancouver Canucks as well today announced a uh, an extension for their general manager Jim Benning and Trevor Linden. I believe maybe the president of hockey operations. Yeah, it's like the almost de facto general yeah. manager, but not by name. Didn't explicit. Didn't wasn't as explicit as the Rangers or the Senators, who were a little bit more subdued or, or subtle in their way of saying it. But also said the same thing that they're looking for the future. The Canucks are already out of it. Um, you know, they they need they have some great young assets. I mean, Brock Besser is a Calder Trophy candidate, and Bo Horvat and other. They've got a lot of really good prospects in their pipeline. They're looking to get younger too. You know, what could that mean for a player like Thomas Vanek, who's almost guaranteed to get traded at trade deadline day? Because he always does. So, you know, it, it's good. I think you, the last thing you want to do for your to your fan base is to 
mislead them. Mm-hmm. I mean, those three teams, but the Rangers in particular, because they're within they're within reach. I mean, a, a well timed hot streak, and they won the first couple games after that letter came out. A, a well timed hot streak may put them in a wild card spot, and they and the players aren't giving up despite the fact that their their general manager is looking to fix things for the future and not worry about potential playoff games this year. Um, but I think it's good. Um, and it really depends on the market. Really. I, I think that, I think that letter in New York went over really well, but then you see it in Vancouver and maybe people are rolling their eyes a little bit. Well, I think it might be a little bit different too, because as you're mentioning being in that horrible position where you're just right outside of a playoff spot, but still not good enough to get a, a high draft pick. Yeah. I mean, the Canucks themselves have been doing that for years and you can even go back farther to Calgary with Jerome McGinley. Like the, the Canucks probably had a chance to trade the Sedins or trade a bunch of assets to start a rebuild, and they just haven't done it, and they're still languishing in the Pacific Division. The Calgary Flames are very similar. Now, their rebuild, and I think they're still kind of getting to the point where they still have pieces that they need to acquire, um, but they waited forever to trade Jerome McGinley when they probably could have done it two or three years before they actually did. But I look at a team like the the Flyers, who didn't necessarily tell their fans, hey, we're going to be going to rebuild right now. But they kind of started doing that when they uh, when they brought in Hackstall, you know, got Goss Despair, got these players and made some trades. Nolan and, Patrick. Yeah. And look where they are now. They're third in the Metro as we speak, I believe. They um, lost, what, like 10 games? They lost 10 games in a row or something like that earlier this season? Yeah. I think the team that currently has the model for, you know, if you look at teams around the league that were able to literally rebuild on the fly, Boston this season is a team that I think has proven that it's possible. I think Toronto as well. I mean, that's a multi. Yeah. Well, they bottomed out. out. Toronto had to bottom out for a while and get all those high draft picks and get, you know, luck into Austin Matthews and all of that. But you know, look at Boston. I think there are a couple of years they had a schedule. I mean, they still have older players, mm-hmm. you know, Zdeno Chara, Patrice Bergeron, who's compiling a heart trophy worthy season, Brad Marchand, um, David Krejci, but then you, and Tuka Rask, but you have all these young players around them, like David Pasternak and some of their other Mac- younger players. McAvoy is yeah, really McAvoy. good. McAvoy. You have got these younger players that they just, you know, they got rid of, they got rid of some dead weight veteran wise. They brought up these kids. They say, all right, just go for it. And those kids are playing really well. And Boston is the hottest team in the league for the last couple of months. Yeah. And I um, think it speaks to how teams now are very, are, are a lot more comfortable than they were maybe even five years ago to go with the youth movement and to let these kids kind of have the reins because of just how good the kids coming out of junior and the kids coming out of college are. Teams are more receptive to letting them do things. And that's why we're seeing so many free agents that are only like, you know, 30, 32, 35 years old, not having contracts at the end because you've got these kids coming in for league minimum on entry level contracts that are playing really well and are starting to score, you know, 10, 15, 20 goals a season. Um, So I think it speaks to that as well. You know, the the changeover and kind of the philosophy of building a team now. Yeah. I mean, you look at the Predators even a couple of years ago, they weren't in a rebuild necessarily, but you look at the players that they were employing, like Paul Gostad and Eric Nystrom, you know, and Bear Jackman, and these players that were, you know, in their 30s, and you needed those sorts of like teams feel used to think that they just needed rosters filled with those guys you for know, experience, for experience and, and grit and leadership and glue and all those other cliches. But you know, you don't. I mean, you can supplement your, you can, you can complement your your core youngsters with those players like the Predators are with Scott Hartnell and having Mike Fisher come back and 
you know, Pecorine, but you don't need your team filled with them. And, you know, you look at the way the Predators are built now. I mean, look at the contracts they have. Look at how young everybody is. I mean, there's so many players that either have not reached their prime years or are in their prime years right now that are making a difference for this team. Philip Forsberg, Victor Arvidsson, Ryan Johansson, Kyle Turris, you know, the entire defensive core, the top four. Um, you know, they have a lot of plays. They have a lot of pieces there, but it's about, I think teams are starting to realize that you don't need to fill your team, uh, with, you know, grizzled wily veterans, just have a couple, throw in a couple, you know, you've got, like I said, Sky Hartnell, Mike Fisher, Nick Benino, you know, great. But you know, that's then you have Callie Arncroft next to him Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Kevin Fiala and Craig Smith and, and Colton Sissons and Austin Watson. Like that's, that's what you need. You need a good blend. I think the Predators have a good blend of that and that's why they're doing so well. And uh, I completely agree with that. So uh, as we're wrapping up, I want to do uh, just talk very briefly about the Olympics real sure. quick. Because we were recording this on uh, today's Wednesday, right? I yes, don't even know is. what my days are anymore. It so we're recording Wednesday. this Wednesday afternoon. We have a uh, marquee matchup between the USA women's team and the Canadian women's team, which I'm staying up late to watch. It's, what time is that game? Uh, it's like 10.30, I think, something okay. like that. It's uh, it's a little bit late. Might be past my bedtime. Yeah, but I'd, I'd prefer to stay up late rather than waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning to, to watch. Yeah. Um, have you taken any uh, taken a spin through any of the Olympics or you anything know, like I've, that I've so far? I've watched a little bit of briefly, you know, not just of hockey, but of the other events as well. But you know, with the way the prior schedule has, you know, sometimes I I, I lose track of your, my days and the time. <laughs> no, well, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you what: is if we're talking strictly about hockey, as this is a hockey podcast, uh, it doesn't seem like you're going to be missing much if you uh, skip out well, on the, the United USA States has a men's sinker. team. Oh yeah, against Slovenia, 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 yes. and uh, a Slovenia team without Anze Kopitar. Who yeah, I so who's their most notable been, player? I don't know. That's the problem. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was talking about this with uh, one of our coworkers before uh, earlier in the day, just about how idiotic of a decision it was for the NHL to hold their players out of the Olympics. But just as an exposure and getting people used to watching hockey or see this primetime hockey with the best players in the world. And now you've got guys like, no disrespect, but Bobby Butler. I think Brian Gianta might be one of the highest marquee names on Team USA, and he's what, 38 years old? He hasn't yeah. played in the NHL for a year and, you know, you know, great career, but he's in the twilight of it and that's just how the guys are going. And it's kind of sad to, to see that because I know that there are some players specifically that, ha- were, that helped their team get to the Olympics and can't play in the tournament that they helped them get to. Philip right. Brubauer is a prime example for that and you know, plays for the Washington Capitals. I don't know. So I don't think that we're missing much, but who knows? Maybe that if you're making a miracle two or something like that, that's the first little hiccup in the road. Segways into act two. The USA has a terrible loss to Slovenia, and then they find their character and composure and go on to win the gold medal or something like that. It could happen. Um, The last time the NHL didn't go to the Olympics was 1994, and I actually believe the, the captain of the 1994 US Olympic team was Peter Laviolette. So it's different, you know, I understand the NHL's qualms about stopping the season and, you know, players being at risk for injury. But the idea that the idea that the Olympic participation hasn't grown the game, I can't I can't wrap my arms around. You know, maybe I haven't seen the numbers that they have seen, but hmm. I just sense that there are a lot of people who pay attention to Olympic hockey that, you know, afterwards, like think about this. I would love to know just how 
TJ Oshi merchandise flew off the shelves a couple of years ago when he was the shootout wizard. I hear, still hear people talking about that. Yeah. Even people who are not hockey fans but remember watching that. I've seen posters of that in, in stores before of him, that great picture of him slumping yes. over at center ice, and you can see uh, it was a Bobrovsky I in the background. So. Um, like, that is an iconic photo, and you would, it, I don't think it would mean as much if it were, uh, I don't know, someone else who's who's playing i don't have the olympic roster right in front of me right yeah. now but i i just i don't think it would mean that much and if people are still talking about it right now i mean that is something that you cannot replicate yeah i agree um and i just think that it's important for i think it's just important just overall hockey growth and and especially in south korea where you have to imagine the hockey isn't a great you know isn't a is an on people's radar i mean the next olympics are in beijing um, you know, China actually, you know, has great hockey viewership and they're going to, they've been playing games there, preseason games there, the NHL has, and I think they're going back there again next year. That's a, that's a market that the NHL is really trying to tap into. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you wonder if they decide to go back, go back to the Olympics in four years, but it, it you know, I, you can tell that a lot of players are disappointed I mean, Pecorine, I know, is disappointed because this is probably his last opportunity to represent his country because by the time the next one rolls around, he's going to be close to 40 years old and yep. they're not going to want him, probably. Um, you look at you know, a player like Matthias Ekholm who made the World Cup of Hockey team and he probably would have been on the Swedish team. You know, Other players may still have an opportunity, Philip Forsberg, P.K. Subban, um, Victor Arvidsson, Roman Yossi, Kevin Fiala, mm-hmm. but you know, I, you know, it's... I feel particularly bad for Pecorino just because he hasn't had that opportunity and he, and he never will now probably I mean, his, his brother-in-law is on the team. His twin sister's husband is a member of the Olympic team. Um, you know, so he has a reason to watch with interest. I mean, you see Soros. I mean, next Olympics could be you know, in line to be the starting goaltender yeah. for the Finnish yeah, Olympic team. team. So it is disappointing. Uh, but I think the prayers are overall pleased with the fact that, you know, there isn't an Olympic break that's cutting into this momentum that they're building. So right. that's the way they're looking at it. Right. And you get a, a good look at Tolvanen as well. To, yes, who's, of course. Tolvanen. You know, 18 years old, I believe still right now. 18, 19. Uh, yeah. yeah. 18, 19. Uh, so Predators fans are going to be watching with that, but hopefully the, uh, the best thing to come out of the Olympics is, uh, uh a bigger eye on women's hockey because I agree. so far um, the United States team looks absolutely electrifying and dynamic. Um, I, again, I mentioned it just a couple of minutes ago, but I am extremely stoked to see this game between the United States and Canada as they're, they're always electrifying. And yeah, it, this could very well be the year that the United States team brings home a gold medal, which I think would be amazing, not just for their team, but for, um, you know, young girls looking for role models and uh, the, the expanse of, of women's hockey, which I don't think gets enough uh, uh, light on because it, it is it is a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I think that would be great. And I think that is the biggest benefactor to the NHL not being there in hockey wise is the women's game, um, which I feel like. You know, it just kind of gets shoehorned into, oh, that's that's nice. But they they are very talented ladies. Um, you know, the, as you mentioned, the U.S. team is stacked with talent. Um, and I think they have a very great chance of, of winning the Olympic tournament. And I think they deserve that spotlight um, because, you know, there was a point in time where they weren't being fairly they weren't being fairly compensated. And, uh, you know, now. Uh, they are getting a spotlight that if their NHL, if their American counterparts were there, that they probably wouldn't be getting. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the best thing. I, I think that if there is a 
bright side to the NHL not being there. It's the fact that the women can finally get an opportunity to shine. Absolutely. I'm going to have my uh, Hillary Knight hat on there you go. For, the, for the rest of the night on uh, over here. Um, so unless there's anything else that uh, no, you I want think to we talk about, a lot. I, I think we covered a lot of ground. So you can reach Adam Vingen on Twitter at Adam Vingen. Uh, I'm Jay Garcia 36 and we will see you next time. <laughs>